This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Last week, over 400 students in five elementary schools in the town of Yarmouth received demonstrations on how to use a white cane. Halifax Community Reporter Milena Kavanavichis shares the details and uh, recaps those demonstrations. Hello, Milena. How are you doing today? Alex, um, I'm not the greatest. I feel like I've been run over by a tow truck, but here I am. I just want to, small correction, not just a demonstration on how to use a white cane. It was a presentation on what would you do if you had a really cool friend who was in your primary or grade one or grade five class and they were blind. You know, and what kind of things would you do with them? Would you leave them indoors at recess? And most of the kids said no. Their answers were, we're going to carry them outside or we're going to piggyback them outside. One young fellow in grade three, in fact, said he was going to put a leash on his friend and help to guide him out. Well, I may not be the best <laughs> advice, but at least the spirit was there. The, the the engagement, they want to involve everybody in in play. So that was uh, the spirit, you, let's let's focus on that. But, Milena, you were actually involved in these demonstrations, in these conversations. So how did the students respond to you and your guide dog, Hope? I, I will tell you, it, it was actually, uh, um, it was it, this, this was a grant that was given by the uh, regional uh, health uh, community up in Yarmouth. And a lot of these schools are rural schools, you know, 250 kids, 300, 400 um, Small, small schools, rural, rural, rural areas. None of them had seen a white cane before. That was a guarantee. The classes were primary to um, grade five, and it was back to back, and it was me, um, all of, all on me, talking nonstop for five days in a row. Hence, probably why I'm sick, <laughs> <laughs> and all the little germs that they so gave to me in the end. Um, the reception by the kids was fantastic, um, along with the teachers. And I'm going to say something, eh, maybe not too nice, but I, I would venture to guess for as little as these rural kids knew, I think the teachers knew even less, mm -hmm. which was interesting to me. I've done in 20 years, many, many a school presentation with children. I make it very interactive. They get to try, you know, um, feeling Braille and, and you know, hitting a, a talking clock and um, maybe touching the cane and at the end, their big reward is to pet Hope, who was dynamite for her very first year out in doing this. So, yeah, and, and the reason I brought this up was not to brag about me doing all this, but the importance of advocacy to this day. I'm a true believer. We can talk to adults. I don't know how you feel, Alex. Over and over, and it goes in one ear and out the other. But these kids in three of the five schools were asking their principal, when is our blind student coming? We're ready. 
Well, so I think something was achieved. <laughs> well, and, and that's that's the key, right? Because yeah. you, you want to be able to reach those kids. You want to show that, you know, by sharing information, by exposing them to, you know, what is the experience is like for someone who is blind, partially sighted, that, you know, yeah. we, we are out there in the community that they may yes. not have been exposed to it before. And as you mentioned, too, yeah. the, the teachers may may have known even less than what the students said, but that education, that, that awareness is so key. So... Um, were, do you feel like those students, and, and then specifically the teachers as well, do you feel like they did learn a lot and take away a lot from those conversations? I, I do feel, um, I, I feel that with every presentation I do with kids, I, you know, you'll, you'll get your one Yahoo, um, would you help me go to a movie theater? No! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So the no, we, we're okay, well, why not? Well, well, you can't watch a movie, and then I explain about audio description. And, and let me make it clear, I don't talk about just complete blindness, which is, which is what is for me, but I do talk about large print and somebody may see, walk into the classroom and they see gray or blurry or, uh, you know, a little bit. So it, uh, all of it is covered within the 40 minutes that each class gets. So, um, yes, I, I definitely do feel that uh, something was taken away. You know, and, and these guys are little and hopefully they'll remember an experience um, before they move out into university or college or when they grow up and maybe leave small town, rural Nova Scotia. Who knows? They'll at least they'll have something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And Melinda, I know you aren't uh, feeling well. So I, I want to just uh, touch uh, quickly on uh, two holiday uh, concerts that are taking place in Halifax that you wanted to highlight. So what are the two concerts that are coming up and, and why did you want to highlight them? Okay, these are these are very quickly, Alex. Um, the, the Halifax Concert Band, it's free, December the 5th at St. Agnes Church, which is one of our oldest Anglican churches on Mumford Road. The locals will know where that is. Mumford Road, December the 5th, starting at 7 p.m. It will be a full concert with Christmas music. Um, there's probably about 70 to 80 uh, band members. They are fantastic. Uh, free by donation. Uh, sadly, no site of guide um, and no pre-registration, so please plan ahead how you're going to get there, who you're going to go with. Okay, it's free. And the next one I'm very excited about, it's a tuba Christmas affair. <laughs> so it's going to be 60 tubas. I don't know if I'd be able to handle 60 tubas presently how I feel, <laughs> um, but that's going to be December the 9th at uh, 2 p.m. at the Central Library in the Paulo Regan Hall. Again, it is free, no registration, no sighted guide, so plan ahead. December the 9th at 2 p.m. And 62 Buzz playing classical Christmas songs. I mean, if for nothing else, just to go and experience 62 Buzz. I, I agree, uh, Melena. I don't think I would be ready for 60 tubas right now. I think I would have to brace myself and prepare a little bit. So I'll just recap the information quickly. So there's uh, the Halifax Concert Band Christmas, uh, December 5th at the St. Agnes Church. Again, that's it's, the admission is free. And you can find out more information by visiting halifaxconcertband.ca. HalifaxConcertBand.ca, and the second one, December 9th, at the Halifax Central Library. Those are the 60 tubas uh, that are going to be playing. And the more information, you can give them a call at 902-490-5700. One more time, 902-490-5700. 
zero. Milena, thank you so much for, for powering through with us today. I hope you feel better soon. You can go rest and recover, and we'll chat with you again soon. Okay. Thanks so much, Alex. That was Milena Kavanavichas, who is a community reporter based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. In 60 seconds, John Lepke will share the entertainment report of the day. But first, legal experts in the U.S. meet to discuss the implications of AI in legal proceedings. Here's Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. Inside a Brooklyn courthouse Tuesday, members of the New York City legal world convened to discuss how artificial intelligence tools like ChatGPT and Dolly 3 could impact their profession. These aren't the old doctored photographs, you know, that we did, you know, 20 years ago. Hector LaSalle is the presiding justice of the New York State Supreme Court Appellate Division Second Department. He says one of the chief concerns he has is the use of AI to manufacture evidence. As generative AI becomes more sophisticated, it could be actually fooling the lawyer who's promulgating it, the client giving it to them. LaSalle says the courts are not legislators, but since there is little regulation of the AI space, the courts do have a role to play. Getting facts, speaking to experts, talking to people who know a lot more than we do to find out to make sure that our internal policies um, are uh, effectively using AI. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Now it is time for the entertainment report, because Getty Lee just dropped a new memoir yesterday. John Lucky is filling in for Laura Bain today, and John has all the details. John, you want to talk about Getty Lee and his new memoir. Why did this uh, topic and idea jump out to you? Sure. I mean, I think it's always interesting when we see uh, people to the scale, particularly Canadian musicians like Getty Lee coming up with this book, which um, is titled My, and I'll spell it so that nobody feels that they have to hit the censor button on me, um, E-F-F-I-N apostrophe, uh, life, so My F-N life, um, which really charts, he's talking about his career, but also how he grew up, um, and he's talked in the past about, um, I believe he calls himself a Jewish atheist. Um, so really talking about the span of his career and the time in one of Canada's leading bands. Yeah, so obviously being the front man and uh, lead vocalist for Rush, as you say, can't, one of Canada's uh, biggest bands, one of the most successful rock bands in history, dozens of gold albums. Like this was truly a a band that kind of lasted a span of time of decades that uh, it, they they almost come across in in my mind as a musician's band. You know, the public may mm -hmm. may have less familiarity with Rush, but any musician who who is really passionate about music. Rush is usually towards the top of their list when it comes to favorite bands, favorite musicians, and favorite artists. Absolutely. Um, and and it's one of those things where, you know, they, they their success, particularly in the awards space, I think sometimes awards, you, you may look at the awards list and it's a who's who of people that have been on top 40 radio. But when you look at Rush's awards and bands like them, you can really see their uh, their acclaim from from the industry as well, which is a real a real compliment. Um, my question to you, Alex, is uh, what do you think makes a good musician's memoir? Ooh, that's a great question there, John. So I think when it comes specifically for musicians, because we, we've become so accustomed to this larger than life, 
rock star lifestyle, like you, you know, the sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that kind of <laughs> mentality. I, I think what really makes a, a musician memoir uh, so compelling is when you can dive into that. You, you kind of get a unfiltered, um, unsanitized view of what their life has been like living that lifestyle and, and kind of really diving into it. Now, maybe Rush is not exactly the band you think of when you think sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but, you know, there's still going to be, uh, if you're a, a rock star for that long period of time, there's going to be something that's going to be captivating that you're not going to necessarily know going into it. So it's those secrets, it's those mm -hmm. new information, those new revelations that come out in the book. I think that's what really makes it compelling, but also learning about some of the uh, kind of philosophy theories or the meanings behind maybe some of their, their most iconic songs or riffs that maybe people may not know about or may have uh, had different ideas of what the meaning of uh, some of their famous songs were. I think that's really where you get something compelling and memorable. But what about you? What, do you, in your mind, makes a compelling musician's memoir? Yeah, I think for me it depends what stage of life uh, the musicians in. I think for younger artists, I'm thinking of the Taylor Swifts and Billie Eilishes, really what has replaced in my mind those early career memoirs or biographies or, um, has been the uh, the documentary um, about the, the far more concert documentaries proliferating on Netflix. What I find interesting when we get to, you know, the rushes of the world, um, some of these other memoirs, is when they're reflecting not just on the music but on life and and particularly from what i understand of this book getty is talking a lot about grief um one of the uh members of, of rush passing away recently um and, and when the when it's not just about the music because I, I i can't identify with as you said sex drugs rock and roll but but i can i can identify with specifically to disability you know life transitions and figuring out your body and brain and and how to manage grief in a in a new uh era which leads me to ask alex uh who do you want to see a memoir from Ooh. now so this is going to be a bit tough for me because i i think a lot of the artists that i naturally would have originally thought oh i i want to read kind of their their life story They've already put something out. There's already been something mm. presented as these these older generations of musicians. Because uh, as, as you mentioned too, uh, it's like when you get younger artists, I don't want to read a memoir from a younger artist. I want someone who's had a long, storied, famous or infamous career. I, I want some something that's going to be really compelling. I just don't think at this stage a Billie Eilish, a, a Taylor Swift. I, their career isn't long enough now. They're still eventful. There's still a lot of key moments, but I want to wait until it's a bit further down the road before I dive into their memoir. But one for me, I would have loved. Unfortunately, he's since been passed away for many years. But Freddie Mercury, I think, would have been a mm. really compelling memoir to read just because of everything that was entailed within his life. You know, his his identity, his sexuality, the music. Uh, Queen has always long been one of my favorite bands of all time and one of the biggest bands in the world. So how they balance all that, the tension and and uh, kind of the relationships within the band, I think would have been really compelling to explore from his perspective. What about you, John? Yeah, for me, and 
I find it hilarious that I'm about to go off the board on my own question, um, <laughs> which is probably mean to you as the host. But um, what I'm really interested in is there are, uh, you know, YouTube channels and projects like Songhouse, which is like a, a, they put out YouTube videos and shorts and um, they come together for songwriting camps and put out uh, short videos. And then the ones that that gain traction, sort of snippets of songs get produced into full full songs. I would love to see memoirs from influencers who are building their their careers in that way, um, or people who've done it previously, uh, folks like uh, Kurt Hugo Schneider or uh, or John Cozart, who are who are young. Uh, I believe John Cozart is. Um, I'm early 30s. I, I believe he's he's around that mark too. So earlier on the memoir, but I'd really love to hear from people who built their careers primarily off of this social media generation in a way that isn't a YouTube short. I find it interesting when people switch their their mediums uh, and and decide to take on some of this uh, writing work. Yeah, no, that's a very uh, good point because it, it's this whole new way to capture an audience to get that immediate reaction that it's just a whole new medium for, for music and artists to really express themselves and get that direct feedback from the audience instead of going through a label, going through the, the traditional process of making music. John, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. It was really fascinating. Have yourself a wonderful day. You as well. Okay, that was John Lepke filling in for Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, we got another hour of the show. I will have the regional news update, and Brock Richardson will be here with the sports chat. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.